know, it's not so much about knowing all the answers, but the ability to kind of ask the key questions in every situation. Uh, and then to kind of bring it all together. So I'm saying, you know, hey, if you're running a business unit, don't just think like, a, like an operator. Think, hey, if I'm an investor, if I'm a shareholder, if I'm a board member of uh, IBM, how would I look at this situation? And when I'm interacting with a customer, you know, what are the various forces on that particular decision maker? Is he taking the point of view of something? Welcome to another episode of Pioneers of Possible, the show that connects you with the futurists, leaders, dreamers, and builders who have reshaped what's possible in the worlds of business and technology. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host and fellow technologist. And today I have the pleasure of having Max Michaels, General Manager of IBM Network Services with me in the studio. Hi, Max. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Awesome to have you on the show. Thank you very much for making time to join me. I know it's uh, about six o'clock in the morning at your end in uh, New York. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think you mentioned it's still dark there. Is that right? Yes. New York is still waking up. It's uh, a bit cool as well, I understand. Well, it's uh, 11 o'clock here in the middle of the night and uh, it's dark at my side. So we're, uh, bo- we're both technically uh, in the dark, as it were. <laughs> now, Max... Um, could we perhaps just get you, uh, for folk who don't know you uh, and, and, and are just getting to know you now, could you perhaps just give us a quick intro to yourself personally, uh, just a little bit about Max Michaels and, uh, and who you are and, and specifically uh, around your uh, role as general manager of IBM Network Services? So I run a network services business for IBM globally and network services is a part of uh, uh, GTS, that is Global Technology Services, which is about 40% of IBM's businesses. And uh, network services is one of the four service lines within GTS. Uh, And it is a significant uh, business for IBM. And we have been in this business for the past uh, 35 years. So clearly a longstanding business, um, which has a lot of momentum behind us at this point. You, um, you bring quite a pedigree to this role. Uh, we were talking earlier, and, and you know, there's a number of brands that, uh, that you've been able to build on. I, I know there's mention of uh, brands like AT&T and Cisco and others behind you. Um, could you perhaps share some insight into kind of your career path and some of the organizations you've worked with or for and, uh, and, and what they've helped you bring to this role? Well, when I've been around, so uh, I spent six years at Cisco Systems, uh, telecom space. I also spent some time at at and before I joined uh, IBM. I started my career as a management consultant uh, at McKinsey, did some banking at Morgan Stanley. Uh, so that's uh, quickly my background, but um, clearly a, a lot of uh, those experiences and what I learned from these uh, large corporations uh, are you know helping me uh, for deliver on many of the promises I need to keep at this point that IBM is making to its shareholders and to its customers. Of course, yeah. Now, before we get into the role too much, um, I wonder if you would mind if we can just get to know you a little bit better. Uh, in, in some of the conversation we had uh, prior to starting the recording, um, there are a few things that uh, really caught my attention. Uh, one of the things I was interested in, you've got a series of hobbies that you have that you uh, participate in just to kind of get out and uh, just, you know, wind down. And uh, you mentioned a few like you used to play tennis with your uh, yeah. your two daughters and your wife, uh, that you love walking the dog, but swimming, you said, was a big one. Tell us about uh, where does that fit into the world and on a day-to-day basis in, in the life of Max Michaels? 
Well, I know everyone likes to hit the gym uh, every evening. Uh, that's not what I get to do. But uh, anytime I get a chance, I manage to get into the pool. And uh, clearly, having uh, lived in uh, Dallas before I moved to New York, uh, clearly, uh, you know, that is a habit I got into, and I continue that. Uh, I also um, like to walk my dog. In fact, run with my dog might be a better way to put it. I have a, a seven-year-old Australian Shepherd uh, called Charlie Brown. And he likes running, so I jog with him in the park. So uh, those are some of the things that keep me active uh, physically and also help me refresh my thoughts and thinking. I like your choice of dog. Um, <laughs> I was talking to someone recently on a podcast, and they, they too had an Australian cattle dog, which uh, really caught me. Um, yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I can totally relate to that. I think uh, we were talking earlier, and you know, I, I take our uh, hound for walks around Sydney Harbour, and uh, occasionally when something's just really... Uh, caught me off guard or I just need a bit of downtime I love nothing better than just throw the ball at the poor animal and have it chase it around and <laughs> occasionally uh, just get some clarity of thought um, one of the things that I was also interested in and I'd love to get some uh, background on is uh, in early childhood you had a number of, of key influences but in particular you mentioned that uh, your, your grandmother I think it was who you said was a principal of a school um, can you share some insight into kind of the early inspiration and influence that she might have given to you personally yeah, sure. So my grandma was a very educated uh, woman, and I was the firstborn, so the oldest uh, kid of uh, and the oldest grandchild for her. So she spent a whole lot of time with me, and uh, and they used to tell me stories, uh, which inspired me and kind of challenged me uh, in many ways. And subsequently, when I now that I've read so many more books since then. I found that these are all stories she had picked uh, from her own reading, and she used to be a voracious uh, reader. And uh, recently I, I had to give a talk, and uh, I was relating a story, and I then realized that, you know, that's a story I picked up from her so many years ago. This is a story about four men going to a forest uh, to, for, to catch a big game, and then one of them gets distracted and chases a rabbit instead, and hence you know, none of them end up <laughs> getting the, catching the game. Uh, so the story, in fact, is a story from you know one of the famous uh, philosophers, Rousseau himself. But the way she uh, you know personalized that for me, uh, kind of kept it in my uh, in my mind and my heart in many ways through all these years. So uh, stories like that clearly influenced me. So uh, clearly, I've been inspired by ideas uh, through those influences. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, you know I, I have similar experiences in early childhood and then teenage years, particularly teenage years, and uh, for myself anyway, I'm sure you're the same uh, based on what you've just shared there, that uh, it is actually quite valuable and important to turn back and look at those inspirations and, and, and what shaped us over life because in many ways some of the key behaviours and practices and decision-making processes we go through are formed very early on and, and, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. And uh, it sounds like you had some fantastic inspiration there. I was also yeah. I was also interested to hear that you had um, uh, later in life as your career was uh, growing, um, you know, with some of the companies you've been dealing with and certainly some of the um, uh, senior people in those organizations, you mentioned a couple of examples and there was one in particular around EDS and a couple of the firms there that you mentioned where, you know, not so much mentors but some early access to some of those really uh, – big idea thinkers uh, that I'd love to get some further insight into that perhaps helped you shape your, your professional career and your career path maybe. Right. Uh, so I, I guess uh, what I mentioned to you was about uh, the influence uh, Michael Jordan uh, had on him. Michael Jordan is a legendary CEO of uh, 
uh, Westinghouse and CBS. And uh, when I met with him, he had just taken over as the chairman and CEO of EDS, which is going through a restructuring. Uh, and uh, he hired me uh, out of New York and then asked me to move to the headquarters of uh, EDS in Texas. Uh, and uh, I got to work with him very, very closely. And it was in my, you know, I was still in my 30s and uh, had a chance to kind of watch him closely and learn. And many of the things that I, I had assumed about CEOs and what they do uh, changed based on those experiences. In particular, uh, I realized how highly he valued business judgment amongst uh, the people who worked for him. Uh, so. Uh, so I, then that became an important attribute when I would judge myself and my performance as well as people who are collaborating with me. Uh, that is one thing. The other thing I remember is, uh, you know, like, you know, CEOs clearly are not just people who are operators. They are also investors. And uh, where we allocate the resources can dramatically change the future of a corporation. And I, I saw that firsthand and how it helped uh, EDS transform itself and eventually sell the company uh, uh, to uh, HP. So I went through that whole journey along with them. So clearly a lot of learning from that. I, I guess in many ways that shapes up a lot of you know what you bring to the table today. I remember reading yeah. a couple of uh, articles and even I think a recent blog. And one of the things that really struck me, and you mentioned a few phrases that, that jumped out of this, and that is that this whole concept of thinking differently, which obviously fits very nicely with uh, IBM's mantra of, uh, of, of you know, thinking differently, but also just divergent thinking and, and new ideas in general. Uh, I imagine that some of those early influences that you just described there help shape that approach uh, as to how to come to you know, current projects or, or challenges or whatever it might be and to, to bring them to, you know, to what you do personally, but also to what you offer the team, I guess. Yeah, very much. You know, I think it is at MIT that I picked this up. But the idea was that a mind stretched with a new idea never goes back uh, to its original state. So, you know, so the role we all need to play as leaders to be, you know, opening the minds of other people before the change can happen. So, again, that's that's another idea which I kept close to my heart, yeah. I like the sound of that. I'm going to actually steal that line, uh, a mind that stretched to, yeah, it never returns to early state. Um, and, and, you know, I, th- I think there's a there's a number of key takeaways with that with folk who are listening where, you know, we get a lot of um, folk listening who are either, uh, you know, still in university or in college, as it were, uh, who are looking, you know, early part of their career, looking to sort of learn. And I, I think there's there's no value that can be placed on how important it is to look at some of these thought leaders that we've seen over the generations, over the years, uh, particularly some of those very big brands of, you know, the Cisco's and the AT&T's, and you mentioned EDS, who are now, I think, part of HP. Um, you know, some of the things that they had to to deal with, some of the, the early ground they broke, uh, you know, th- those opportunities don't always arise that often these days, where back then there was no option but to think differently and, and to come at things very differently. There's... There's another one where uh, I remember we were talking about it and, and you mentioned you were leading a team that uh, took out, I think it was first place in a McKinsey uh, Worldwide Practice Olympics and uh, you threw some fairly unorthodox orthodox, uh, strategies <laughs> this thing to, to sort of grow a new business. Um, what can you share around those sort of unorthodox uh, strategies and thinking that, that made that possible? Yeah, that is some of my early thinking. It came out of uh, uh, some work I did at... Uh, as a graduate student at MIT, and uh, we were looking at how people look at uh, investment opportunities or any making any commitments for the long term, and clearly any commitment in the long term, especially when uh, those commitments are in some sense irreversible, uh, 
and then there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, people are relying on some standardized tool to kind of come up with that. And one of the early tools we have all used in finance is based on capitalist and pricing models. That is, we go and estimate the net present value of an opportunity, assuming a certain level of risk for the future cash flows. And even today, that is the most dominant model that we all use, uh, both in the financial world and also in inside the, the, you know, the business world. So the thinking there was that in the business world cannot be directly compared to what happens in the financial world, where if you acquire or buy stock, you have very few uh, options or uh, ability to change the outcome. Whereas if you are running a business like I'm right now, there are so many changes you can make even after you make the commitment based on how the market evolves and how the customer perceptions and preferences change. So that was the intuition. And then instead of relying on uh, CAPM, uh, I used Black-Scholes formula those days, which is a way of option pricing modeling to do that. So the intuition there is that you are able to influence a few key variables, including uncertainty itself, if you're able to take a set of actions. And that then is uh, what won the Global Practice Olympics at McKinsey, and I published that article. And that is an idea which I have used subsequently in every place I went in some form or fashion. Uh, and I continue to use that right now in my current role at IBM. Uh, I guess even even knowing how to throw a partial differential equation at something uh, <laughs> like an investment to option is, is a fairly unique approach to start with. Uh, you you did actually at one point lead a venture capital firm that invested in software companies. I, I guess that gave you a fairly unique um, uh, view of the world in that uh, when when you come to a business opportunity, if you're looking at it from an investment point of view, if you're a venture capitalist, uh, you quite literally have uh, money on the line. So that, that must also help shape up, I guess, your view of how, how opportunities and so forth uh, are approached right. in your current role uh, in, in many ways, I, I'm assuming. Oh, very much, yeah. So that again was a was a great experience, and again lessons which you know which are unforgettable, right? Because you are investing your capital and capital from other investors uh, into into in those days technology opportunities, and uh, how do you how do you minimize the risk? And again, what I just discussed about you know other ways of thinking about that in terms of how do you create situations where you're, you have the right to grow or invest when the opportunities shape up, but minimizing the obligation that you're making early on when the uncertainties are very high. That is a principle that I used, and that really helped me. Uh, and again, I find several avenues where such thinking can help inside large corporations such as IBM, and I'm doing that within my service line now. In uh, and, and many ways, when you look at what you're doing now at IBM across your general manager role uh, through the network services um, part of the business, there must be some significantly large industry sectors you're, you're dealing with currently. But your, your background uh, from memory includes the likes of telco and IT services broadly, electronics and banking and biotech and real estate and oil and gas. And I remember reading a, a long list of these, uh, not just in North America, but, but across Europe and Latin America and India. Um, yeah, there's a, an enormous depth and pedigree you're drawing on this. So I can only imagine, you know, what it's like to get a, a new opportunity come through the door. And I think you mentioned one in particular. We can't talk about the, the actual brand itself, um, but I understand it's a, a, a global lifestyle beverage. Let's call it that. Um, I'm really keen to kind of hear how you threw yourself at that challenge and, and what, what the team around you sort of brought to the table to win something of that scale of that, that of that 
I guess, cal, you know, capacity, that, that, that size? Right. Sure. So uh, the, the business we run, uh, we are helping large corporations, uh, say, such as Lufthansa, for instance, uh, that's clearly a name I can mention, has been a long time, customer of IBM, uh, to make investments in creating a global network, right? So they can be efficient, they can they can get the data where they need it on each device that they need it uh, on a timely basis. And that is a complex problem to solve, but the, more importantly, it involves investments in the infrastructure which would be difficult to change once it has been committed. So a lot of that thinking that I talked about becomes important. So uh, the, part of the reason why we were able to prevail upon 12 other competing bids in that particular win that I, I mentioned, which will be announced in a few weeks, is that uh, we were able to show them over the different time horizons how our solution would give them more optionality or more flexibility in depending on how the technology evolves and based on their own experiences with the technologies that we are providing for them. So uh, so, so that, that kind of thinking is very, very important, yet when you try to sell uh, a large project just as a technology, uh, it doesn't come clear. So it's important to get uh, get the right audience, and it's important to kind of communicate that correctly. That's what we did, and that enabled us to win that large contract. Where where do you see the biggest shifts taking place in some of the decision making? So when 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 a deal of that size comes across the table, and, and all of the things you've mentioned, are there two or three key areas where you see people uh, experiencing a shift in change? You know, with across you know not just cloud and big data and analytics and cognitive. Are there key standout areas that you think uh, that that your team are able to help people just, I guess, you know, not so much an epiphany, but a, an aha moment when, when you're in a room with them and you're, whether you're performing Jedi mind tricks with whiteboard markers or just relaying some of the, the value you bring, is there a consistent theme or are there particular things that jump out where you just look and realize, yes, this is what IBM's brought to the table that's unique to to not you personally so much to the team and the business as a whole, that clients look at it and go, yeah, we're, we're in the right place and the right time with the right people? Uh, yeah, there is one in particular which uh, which differentiates IBM as, as, a, as a corporation in this space, which is uh, there is a huge convergence happening between the IT world and what has traditionally been the telecom world. These two worlds are really coming together. And, and the kind of convergence which started off with the advent of internet, but it has all become real now. And, and many corporations used to run their, uh, their IT and networks separately, and they used to have separate leadership teams. But in most of these deals that I'm talking about, uh, we really are able to get the mind share of both the decision makers and oftentimes yeah, one of the C-level uh, executives as well to kind of engage in what are the business implications of what we're doing. So, you know, we are moving away from pure IT outcomes to more converged outcomes between IT and telecom and going one step further into the business outcomes that we need to deliver. So we are able to help them change their business models based on the convergence between IT and telecom. Uh, and I can expand on that. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess you know we see a lot of we see a lot of this. You know, the, there's a broad spectrum here. But if we were going to focus on a couple of key points, you know, we've we've heard about uh, I guess the celebrity experience that people often sort of refer to as the Kardashian experience online. People want to be a a celebrity when they're treated, uh, you know, dealt with, with with companies. They don't just want to be a number. They want to be mobile. They want it all in their their sort of smartphone device. 
I'm definitely seeing a shift to you know what an, an associate of mine uh, as as mentioned. Uh, I think he calls it uh, technology in the boardroom, and that is that the days of having coloured uh, graphs and printouts of what happened yesterday or last week uh, at a boardroom discussion is is very historical and archaic. And these days, everyone's running around with tablets with dashboards and real time analytics. Um, but yeah, do, I would love to get some more insight into what you were talking about there as to kind of where you see that driving as far as not just the mobile piece, but also, I guess, what we're often hearing about the always on component as well, which really surely uh, network is the underpinning foundational component of it, isn't it? That, you know, we can only be always on uh, if if that network piece is already there and, and, and it's safe and secure and, and trusted. Yeah, and Always On, in fact, happens to be one of the initiatives uh, as part of network services. In fact, we have around 100 uh, team members who are focused on delivering Always On services. Uh, In particular, they enable global events such as Wimbledon and uh, US Open to happen. So you can imagine the complexity of delivering that in a seamless fashion to tens of millions of viewers uh, during, during the uh, currency of those events. And uh, and we are now taking those lessons and saying, hey, how can we help uh, enterprises do that uh, on, on a uh, day-to-day basis when they're talking about cloud and hybrid cloud connectivity? So that's the next phase of that. And clearly, uh, the, the, those, are the, those are the new uh, initiatives we are currently focused on. It's it's almost like the the new normal, isn't it? Uh, I remember in two th- in the year two thousand, uh, Australia had the opportunity to host the Olympics here, and uh, uh, at that stage I was an, an IBMer in a form and uh, a contract role, and uh, so I got a, a lot of deep dive experience to IBM's capability uh, to essentially run the Olympics, if you like, everything from you know data centers being built in forty two foot containers on on the back of trucks. Yeah all the way through to to the real-time data being streamed to uh, over then ISDN lines to um, radio and television networks. And it was yeah. interesting that a lot of commentators in the business world, uh, they picked up on the fact that you know very few companies have the capacity that IBM does to actually run an Olympics and, and all the nuances that go with it. And I think, as you just alluded to there now, whether it's the, the you know, we've had the Australian Open here where, uh, you know, tennis has got... Which, which, is, which, is, which, is, which was run by IBM last year, just so you know. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I went to the Australian Open as a guest of IBM's uh, recently. And, <laughs> so you and, know. and it was interesting to see just, uh, you know, we were, we were actually looking at our smartphones, getting real-time data, including the score, more than looking up a scoreboard, which is a, you know, a 40-foot long <laughs> display, right? And it, it really struck me that here we are, at a live match, I'm so close I can get sweat on or spat on by the by one of the opponents, and yet I'm looking at my smartphone with live streaming, live data, uh, and guess who was driving it, right? And I, I guess the, the really interesting little tidbit that you've dropped there um, that I just wanted to circle back on is that always-on component that, that we see with the, the Olympics experience, with the, the tennis open experience. I mean, this yeah. is kind of the norm uh, the, you know, what do they say? It's like the always on or the, the, the sort of the, the whole network piece is the new black. This is what we expect when we wake up. People pick up their smartphones and they want to see what's happening with social media. They want to have to see the news where they're watching Netflix. Um, what does that actually mean to it? When a client comes to IBM and so forth, you know, the, what are some of the things that they have to go through as far as a learning experience um, you know, is concerned when they come to you and, and, and they've got these challenges that they normally throw at you? Um, how, yeah. how do you approach that whole concept of, well, you know, this is the new normal, always on is the new normal, uh, secure is always the new normal, you know, things like blockchain and encryption. 
you know, there must be some astounding looks on people's faces when you can actually say, yes, we can do always on. Yeah, very much. You know, I think you asked, what is that we learn? I mean, in many ways for IBM, it's what we learn after we have seen it all that counts, right? <laughs> so, right. so we have seen it all and uh, we have learned a lot from all those experiences. Uh, and it's interesting for us to see, you know, all over the world, if you look at the, the number of hours people interact with uh, the smartphones or the smart devices is dramatically growing, right? And in the U.S., that number has now crossed 16 hours a day. I mean, it's almost like saying, except for the times you're sleeping, you really are interacting with it on a continual basis. So that that puts a lot of pressures on the networks, but it also puts a lot of pressure on kind of making that data relevant and smarter and useful for the user. And that is the problem that the enterprise customers are solving, right? So when you when we talk about creating large managed networks, we're really doing it so that they can go ahead and serve a customer. Like let's talk about a global uh, car rental company. I mean, yep. How will you change the experience of you know renting that car? You know, starting from the time you books and and the, and the, and the time that they just turn the car back in, uh, and that is being facilitated through the through seamless connectivity and. Uh, convergence of cloud and connectivity. Uh, so th so that's the central message I'm communicating to our customers. So uh, I basically ask them the question, you know, what, what, you know, you're trying to migrate to the cloud, but what is a cloud without connectivity? I mean, you know, yeah. it's like your iPhone in airplane mode, really, right? We're talking about iPhones and smartphones now. You know, clearly, you know, in an airplane mode, you know, of course you can play with it, but, you know, it's still waiting for data and workloads. So... Uh, so the, these clouds are really, uh, the networks are enabling the clouds. So without that, the clouds can't exist in its form and can't be you know, useful. And then the next phase is that these clouds themselves are becoming network. That is the next phase. That's the next phase of the evolution. Uh, so that is what is most exciting uh, for me, uh, you know, inside IBM uh, running network services. So and IBM as a cloud company is leading the way, the transformation of cloud becoming the network and moving the cloud all the way to the edge to closer and closer to the points of consumption. And that is a journey which you know, you know, wakes me up in the morning and say, come on, I've got stuff to get done. And that's what uh, you know, motivates me to get on that early morning call with Japan and then with uh, India and you know, <laughs> it goes on. So, uh, and, and, and that is something yeah. IBM is uniquely qualified to do and we have the permission, we have the credibility to do that. Uh, anyone that's quoting uh, famous basketball coaches like John Wooden on, uh, you know, we only learn when we, we learn <laughs> at the edge of uh, knowing everything. It's probably got a lot to bring to this this whole role. Um, now, I was I was interested to um, hear so much about kind of early stages of your life and, and certainly your, your professional career. Um, but I'm really curious just to delve back into that really quickly. Um, is there something inside you and your character and what you bring to this that uh, most people may not know about you? I mean, that, that seem, you know, you've got an enormous depth and, and breadth of capability, um, and you've alluded to a couple of, of, of your, I guess, approaches around uh, you know divergent thinking and, and new ideas. Uh, is there something that most people may not know about you as to how you approach these things or just the general character you bring to the role? So I think it, it's basically a, a combination of things we just discussed. So I, I really think that I, I I tend to be more reflective. Uh, uh, the you know I, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that you know we are not 
young enough to know everything, right? <laughs> so clearly, you know, you know, it's not so much about knowing all the answers, but the ability to kind of ask the key questions in every situation, uh, and then to kind of bring it all together. So I'm saying, you know, hey, if you're running a business unit, don't just think like as, like an operator. Think, hey, if I'm an investor, if I'm a shareholder, if I'm a board member of uh, IBM, how would I look at this situation? And when I'm interacting with a customer, you know, what are the various forces on that particular decision maker? Is he taking the point of view of someone who has to get the stuff done? Is he under time pressures? Is that the only consideration? Or is he thinking in terms of the time horizons in front of him? And how do I improve his capacity to deliver uh, his promises? And how do I improve his ability to kind of think across these time horizons so he gets the best outcome and the best uh, total cost for operations? So, that, so those are some of the thinking that I bring and has helped me. And I hope I can continue to help um, IBM and the industry as it reshapes itself. Oh, I, I have no fear of that. I don't think there's any doubt of that. Um, now, uh, before we wrap up, one of my favorite things to do with folk, and I, I hope you don't mind me asking this, is, is to kind of do a little bit of crystal ball gazing. Uh, and it's one of my favorite puns in the IBM as to, you know, what's in the horizon, right? Uh, uh, being a big IBM Watson fan. Um, what's in the horizon as far as uh, the world's concerned or you personally? If, if I was to throw to you this idea that um, if you were to gaze into a crystal ball and look over the next 12 to 18 months, uh, let's just say year to year and a half, um, are there any particular things, any epiphanies, any big ideas that jump out of you, either you personally or professionally in your career or IBM or the world in general? Is there, is there something that's just burning as an idea in your mind that you could share that you think uh, that people might be surprised to kind of conceive or, or grasp as something that's just coming over the horizon the next year and a half or so? So what's on the horizon, I guess your answer is Watson, right? And, and I agree with you because Watson and cognitive uh, capabilities is really going to change the way we interact with each other and how we experience the world in many ways, right? So that's happening. And uh, again, for me, the crystal ball or the crystal really is uh, using the lens of uh, network services. Uh, and so the primary uh, vector of uh, disruption there is this convergence that I talked about and what uh, the virtualization and the software-defined infrastructure, as we call inside at IBM, is dramatically changing uh, you know, the whole enterprise uh, managed services world. So, so that, that's, that, is, that is the, the biggest yeah. change. And that change, when you combine uh, with the ability for software-defined infrastructure to provide data in a seamless fashion to improve the decision-making, that's where Watson comes in. So as we speak, we are building a platform which we call it the IBM services platform with Watson to enable our customers to do that. And there's a lot of uh, interest and excitement around that. I, I did like your line, and I've actually written it down because I suspect we could do a whole show on it following on this. But this, um, I love this idea that cloud is the network. Uh, you know, we've had a number of, uh, I guess, uh, iterations around the concept that, you know, the network is the computer and so forth and so forth. But, uh, you know, I... I I do like this idea that, you know, the, over the next year and a year and a half or so, we're going to see what you alluded to there with this whole concept of the, the cloud as a network. Um, where do you think that's going to be in a year's time, in a year and a half's time? Though? I mean, you know, as far as the concept of the cloud as a network and, and things pushing out to the edge, I mean, I, you know, when I think about something like I'm, – I'm a big fan of airplanes, for example, and when the – many people have probably heard me say this before, but when the Dreamliner 787 came out and, and they announced that it generated about half a terabyte of data – per flight, no matter how long it was, I, I 
I went and looked at the US market uh, for, for a keynote I was giving for IBM uh, some years ago, and it struck me that there was something like 87,500 or 87,400 flights a day just in the domestic airspace and US alone in North America. And so I did the math and I was like, well, hang on, if there's 87,400 flights a day, that's 500 terabytes, that's 43 petabytes a day. There's no way we're going to copy that off the plane across the network and into a central cloud and mainframe architecture style, sort of, you know, terminal to the, the server. Um, and, and so I 110% agree that this whole concept of cloud as a network is going to have to shift to it, the whole edge. Um, where do you think that's going to be, though, in the next year or year and a half as far as what that even looks like? How does that shape up as far as this concept that you mentioned of the cloud as the network? So the, the cloud is the network or the cloud becomes the network is happening today. So it, it's, you know, it's already happened, except that it's, you know, in terms of uh, adoption rate, you know, I think more than 40% of the enterprises are, have adopted that. Uh, but if you were to look at the revenue numbers, you know, it'll take two or three years for that to catch up. So that's the phase at which it is. But the, the point you're making really is about how the explosion of data, and you talked about the example of, the, of each airplane generating so much data, how that increases the demand for everything to be software defined so that the the compute storage and networks can all converge into one one entity which provides that value to the customer yeah because imagine you know if if the storage is not there then you are not able to provide the the cloud or the compute capabilities because you know you need to be able to combine them to and then connect it back to the end user so that it is usable. So, so that is what is changing, that convergence between storage, compute, and uh, uh, connectivity. And I guess it's always that cat and mouse game, isn't it? Because even if we were to catch up the Boeing 787 Dreamliner and this 43 petabytes of data potentially created just every day inside the North American market, Airbus, not to be outdone, uh, recently bought out, I think it was the A330 or the A350, and uh, it now generates two and a half terabytes of flights. So when we do the math of 87,400 flights a day just at the domestic airspace in the US alone and uh, you know, two and a half terabytes, that's something in the order of 220 uh, you know, petabytes of raw data. It's a whole, whole new order of magnitude times two. Uh, and again, you know, whole new design patterns have to be brought about. Well, look, I, I think there's, there's a whole new show on that topic alone. So we're going to wrap up there. But um, Max Michaels, thank you so much for your time. Uh, folks, you've had an enormous amount of, uh, of insight there, both uh, personally into Max Michaels, the uh, general manager of IBM Network Services and his career path and, and some great insights into what's happening around the, 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 the thinking approach and, and I guess delivery models that he's bringing to this exciting role. And uh, we look forward to having you on the show again soon, uh, Max, and uh, maybe delving into the cloud as a network story in a bit more detail. Sure, I look forward to it. Thank you, Des. Thank you for the great questions. I really enjoyed it.